something new, it's something challenging, and again, it's self-fulfilling. But after a while, they get a bit jaded uh, because of sometimes the bureaucracy, sometimes the, the politics, and sometimes the local environment puts obstacles in your way to achievement. So you have to be, again, you have to manage your own expectations about this type of work. And by the way, by the way I, I always encourage everyone I meet, uh, young, uh, middle-aged, or old, to be involved in one way or another in, in development assistance, economic assistance. Because it's something that, um, it's, it's a legacy kind of that you can leave behind. Uh, one that you can be very proud of, regardless of how much you're able to accomplish. The job market actually in development work is fairly open. Um, it's one of the few areas where you still see a lot of recruitment going on, and in part that's due to high turnover because, again, um, the jobs are not often very high paying, and young people who go into development and then begin a family uh, realize that they can't afford to continue in that sort of work. That's one of the reasons people leave development work. The other reason is what I mentioned earlier, and that is personal frustration because you're not able to achieve your goals. I also want to, before I go to the next stage, and that is uh, how to get a job or where to get a job in development, I also want to say that there's a lifetime argument going on within the development community. And it, it, it's the, uh, the people who are in it purely for humanitarian purposes against the people who are in it mostly for national security purposes. And you are not going to solve this problem. In fact, no one has been able to solve the problem. There's always this tension as to whether we should be doing this sort of thing in this, sort of, in this country because it's the right thing to do, or whether we should be doing it because we have to do it for national security concerns. So I want to warn you that you'll hear that argument and you'll run into people that are on both sides of this argument, some in the middle of this argument, but it's there. So in terms of the job market, uh, the multilateral, bilateral aid agencies here in the United States, the most prominent being the Agency for International Development, but this applies also to the World Bank and, and, and to United Nations, uh, UNDP, uh, UNESCO, or other agencies, um, do hire and in, in fact hire at a high rate uh, people that are young coming out of school that have an interest in in um, development. There are no real, um, there are no entry level um, requirements per se, other than an education. And of course, if you have language skills, that's even better. And if you have, your education is in a, a fairly marketable environment or field of studies like agriculture or engineering, it makes you even more, more valuable. But there are many, many opportunities. Uh, and of course, um, you also have to make a decision as to whether you want to get into the development business uh, and stay out of the field or whether you want to be in it in the, in the field. 
uh, there are many opportunities where you don't have to uh, spend th three or four years in Africa or Asia or Latin America or Middle East or wherever. Uh, there are support functions in the development field that are necessary to support those in, in, in the, um, in the uh, countries and out in, out in the, the villages and the cities. Uh, financial, for example, there are many financial-related jobs and legal-related jobs that are support jobs that uh, are often uh, domestic in, in nature. Um, the challenges of getting a job in the United Nations or let's say with an international financial institution like the World Bank are a little bit more difficult because they're quotas um, and it's political. Uh, unless you have a really specific skill that is very hard to find, you, those jobs you kind of have to know someone to get in, into those, those uh, multinational, uh, international organizations. But I, I want to also point out that there are NGOs that operate outside of the United States that are doing really good work around the world that uh, recruit uh, young people from the United States and, and elsewhere. They may be located in, in uh, Europe or the UK. I guess that's going to be, I usually include UK and Europe, but apparently that's not going to last much longer. Uh, and there are agencies in, in, in Africa, particularly a lot of agencies, by the way, in the Scandinavian countries that hire uh, people for, um, uh, for jobs in development. Uh, most of those jobs are indeed in the field, though. So the opportunities are ripe. Um, it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to have development-related educational experience to get these positions. It's a wonderful way to get on-the-job training. Uh, and I've worked with a lot of young folks that have gone in straight out of college. In fact, I have a son that just graduated from Clemson with a degree in agriculture, and he is now applying for positions in AID and other, other uh, organizations to work in, in development. So I'm going to pause because I, I think I can accomplish and we can accomplish a lot more by my asking or answering uh, your questions uh, that you might have. And n nothing is off limits. If you want to talk about uh, FIFA or Watergate or whatever, uh, or <laughs> politics, um, I, uh, of course, I'm speaking for myself and for Bill. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'm going to ask the first question here. So think about what, what you would like to ask, and please, when you wait for a microphone to come around to you, and then please state your name and your affiliation so Mike knows who you're, you're talking to. <coughs> if I could just, uh, uh, you talked about the uh, variety of uh, specializations in the development field, and one I know you know well uh, that we don't talk as much about here, at least, in the, in the, the careers and development series, is audit investigations and compliance, and it seems to be those areas are growing in importance these days more than, than certainly when I was doing a lot of this stuff 20 years ago. If you could just make a couple of comments. I'd be happy to do that. Every, just about every agent, certainly every agency in the U.S. government now has a, a strong uh, inspector general function which includes investigations, audits, some of them include security in there, 
But even outside of the United States, if you look at the international financial institutions, the European Bank for Redevelopment uh, and Asian Development Bank, they all have uh, offices within that they don't necessarily call inspector general, but play the role of an inspector general in terms of trying to ensure the integrity of the organization and the programs. So they, they really have an operational role in improving effectiveness, or trying to improve effectiveness and efficiency within the organization and within the programs that the organization, the donor organizations uh, fund. Um, it's an interesting career and many people that go into these jobs um, often wind up in, uh, in the field, in management, in a program manager's position or an executive position later in life. Some organizations encourage people to spend some time in an audit-related position or an investigative or inspector-related position because of the broad overview it gives you of the uh, agency as a whole. And this is, by the way, this is not only in the public sector. If you look at a company like General Electric, everyone who has to, who, everyone that goes into senior management, mid-level or senior management, in the big companies like GE, they have to spend at least three years in internal audit. No better way to learn about the inner workings of, of an organization or agency. Now, having said that, it's typical that you do need a little bit more specific experience uh, or education to get into these positions in an inspector general or in a compliance department. Uh, all NGOs of any size today, and of course Bill knows this as being chief compliance officer for the International Medical Corps, all of them have compliance departments today. They've got to assure the governance of the organization and the compliance of the organization because they have a responsibility. They are essentially shepherding taxpayers' money regardless of where the donations come from and they have to, be, they have to ensure that it's being used for the appropriate purposes. Um, some might think, well, gosh, you know, having a big compliance organization having a big inspector general's organization takes money away from the people that you're trying to help. Well, in fact, it's just the opposite. Uh, we have there are many studies that show that if an organization operates within uh, uh, best practices in compliance and governance, they operate much more effect effect effectively and can do much more for people uh, out in the field that need it. So this is a, now, and compliance is a field that has only really come into its own in the last 10 years. The Inspector General's offices have been around for just about forever. But uh, compliance over the last 10 years has become more and more of an attractive vehicle for getting into whatever line of work you want within an agency. Um, but again, most Compliance departments look for people that have some governmental experience uh, or, or perhaps a specific educational um, uh, background like forensic accounting uh, or a legal background. So that's not something you can automatically jump into. Okay, now uh, I, does anybody have a question? Yes. Just uh, over here. They were going to get you a microphone. 
Uh, hi, Mike. My name is Taryn, and I'm with the Brzezinski Institute. Um, we're actually looking at overseas infrastructure development, and so that kind of got me interested in international development. And I've been researching, working for USAID and contractors here in DC. Um, and I have two questions. Um, what's the difference between uh, working for you know these more domestic government side organizations and working for the UN in development? And secondly, if you are interested in working in development, would you recommend waiting until the, the presidential election is over to make that decision? <laughs> um, well, you touched on something that I, I guess I should speak to. Uh, that is the contracting market, uh, the contractors to AID or UNDP or UNESCO or the United Nations High Commission on Refugees, whatever it might be. Um, you'll typically find some, uh, you might disagree with me on this, Bill, but you will typically find that the contractors, the NGOs, are less bureaucratic than the uh, bilateral or multilateral aid agencies. Having said that, they have um, to follow very strict guidelines that are set in stone by donors. And deviating from those guidelines without the approval of the donors uh, is, is you're, you're looking for trouble by doing that. So there is an element of bureaucracy in the contracting world. Uh, but there is more flexibility as well. Uh, in fact, you may find that the work is even more challenging uh, in the NGO environment than, than in one of the uh, international organization environments. With regard to, uh, I didn't quite get the last, sh should you wait until after the, yeah. after the election? Um, is, 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 should you wait till after the election to decide where you want to live in the world? Is that what you're asking? Because <laughs> <laughs> I've already got my place picked out. Depending on how this election goes. Uh, no, look, um, there's not going to be a sea change if um, Donald Trump, God forbid, wins. Um, there's not going to be a sea change immediately. And I would hope that, that if he were to win, his advisors would recognize the immense value of, of development around the world, you can't make America, you can't be inward. You can't make America great again without recognizing that um, the rest of the world matters. And unless we address issues overseas, we can't affix the issues we have here in the United States. So while funding could, look, funding could be cut back I really don't think that, that uh, U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis economic assistance is going to change much. I think you'll see a greater change in U.S. Um, military policy and perhaps trade policy than you will in international development. At least I hope that's the case because I sit on the board of a number of NGOs that um, uh, are almost exclusively funded by the um, by the federal government. I'm on the board of the Center for International Private Enterprise, which is part of the National Endowment for Democracy. And all of their funding, the NED's funding, comes uh, through an appropriation by Congress uh, through State Department and, and, and AID. 
So, uh, and they do good work. They really do wonderful work overseas uh, in building, helping build democratic organizations and promoting free enterprise. So I guess my question is a little bit more broad about the industry, but you mentioned that that it's like a little difficult to, you know, you wouldn't go into international development to become rich, I guess. And I guess another way of looking at looking at that is that like it might be difficult for people from less well-off backgrounds to enter the industry of international development. And that, like, I guess I've, I've read a little about this with regards to, like, unpaid internships and that it, it somehow it inherently kind of restricts the universe of people that can apply for them and get involved in that industry. And I'm curious if you think that's true of, like, in, in, in limiting the people who, the universe of people who apply for it, it also limit, like, the viewpoints and experiences of people who apply for those uh, or get involved in those organizations. And I was curious if you think that applies to the world of international development and if you think that if so, it has an, a negative effect on the industry, or if, and how I guess you could address that. And if, I don't know, people coming from, yeah, I guess that's my question. Go ahead, finish that though. Having people coming from, well, if, I guess you could look at it in a baser sense that like the luxury of being able to like care about or like invest energy in people out in like improving the lives of people around yourselves is itself like a privilege of being able to focus less on yourself so like does that affect the the fact that you're i don't know that international development might be drawing from different sectors of societies that affect um the industry in certain ways does that make sense as a question <laughs> well look yeah um Development can be uh, really, it can be a, a personal sacrifice. If, if you look, for example, uh, at the Peace Corps, which I'm a huge fan of, uh, these people really sacrifice uh, um, their quality or standard of living uh, to simply uh, go out and help, and help others. Um, working for an agency like AID, or um, the United Nations or the World Bank is not as great a sacrifice. I mean, as I started out by saying, you're not going to get wealthy. On the other hand, the jobs uh, pay re reasonably well. It's not the same as in the commercial uh, marketplace. And, um, and in some cases, NGOs pay a little bit better than, than government ser services uh, like, like AID. Um, but um, you, I just think that, that you have to prepare yourself, and, and this is what I said earlier about managing expectations, you really have to prepare yourself for dealing within, under very difficult circumstances, um, and prepare, prepare yourself to be frustrated, and in some cases, completely disheartened by seeing I mean, I, when I was with AID, I, re, I remember going around and inspecting programs in Africa and elsewhere and seeing so much money being wasted um, and diverted and in some cases simply stolen. Um, that hasn't, although AID is one of the few agencies, international organizations, multilateral, bilateral agencies, that really has a strong audit standard and tries to do its best to ensure 
that the money is going for the intended purpose. You're going to find out there uh, in the field, um, it's, um, it's hard to make the changes that you want to make. And that's why I see a lot of people leaving after three or four, maybe, maybe five years out of, out of frustration. I'm not sure that quite answers your question. Um, and by the way, when I said earlier, the World Bank and the United Nations um, a little bit more political in terms of getting a job, uh, it doesn't hurt to know someone in AID. Uh, you can get a job that way. Um, but you still have to go through the, the process, uh, all of the government processes, and it takes a long time to get a, a job in government these days, at least here in, in the United States. So uh, if that's what you're intending, the quicker you start the process, the better off you'll be. The background investigation takes forever. I mean, it's just you could grow old and die by the time they finish these background investigations. They're trying to do a better job of it, but uh, I don't think they have a handle on it yet. Hi there, thank you uh, for joining us today. Um, my name is Grace Kelly, I'm with Chenier Energy. Um, my question goes back to what you were saying at the beginning. You were, spe you were speaking about balancing business and NGO work, and I was just wondering if you could speak more to your experience in balancing that throughout your career, and then how you see that being possible for younger people in the room here. Ah, um, good question. Going into the future, because oftentimes, you know, there are events like these that um, they bring in people who've had amazing careers, doing amazing things over the past 30, 40 years, um, but that experience isn't necessarily applicable to the, the world today, and especially the job market um, going forward. So I wonder if you can reflect a little bit on your past and also speak to um, possibilities in the future. Yeah, Thank you. that's a great question. And so, you know, I do a lot of speaking at colleges around the world, and um, I remember about 10 years ago, I was speaking at the master's, uh, uh, the graduate school of business at Columbia University. And after my speech, a number of the young people who were in the master's program, getting ready to graduate actually, came up to me and said, you know, we, I really want to get a job on Wall Street. Um, you know, I really want to be successful. And a lot of these Wall Street guys come out of college and it looks like they're working hard but making a ton of money, uh, you know, and asked me if I could recommend someone for them to speak to. So last year, I was back before the graduate school uh, at Columbia, and the folks came up to me afterwards and they said, how can I be assured if I go into private business that the company has the same sort of values, the same sort of moral compass as I have? That's a sea change. So here's the deal. When you're looking to go into private enterprise, Look at the corporate social responsibility programs that they have in private business. That's going to give you an idea of what they care about. And look also and ask your, um, the person that's interviewing you um, if they encourage uh, pro bono work, uh, working in the communities. That'll give you a pretty good idea as well. It's very, today it's very common for, um, well, even law firms, uh, which are all about making money, to do pro bono work and, and help in, in the communities.
Hello, my name is Gabriella Spina and I'm currently working at the Oneness Family Montessori School. Um, my question is further on the bureaucracy side of development because I'm hoping to go into a research-oriented job and I'm sure this is dependent on the agency you're looking at, but I'm curious whether the bureaucracy constraints still exist, whether it be bilateral, multilateral, NGO type of agency. Um, with the research policy analysis positions. Um. Well, look, I, I don't, I don't mean to. I hope I haven't scared you all talking about bureaucracy. Um, it's just something you have to deal with, and if you become smart about it, uh, you can easily live within it and accomplish your mission. Um, research jobs in NGOs are actually a little bit less. Um, prevalent than, than jobs out, out in the field, but they, they do exist, uh, particularly if you have uh, a background uh, in specific areas. If you're, you are a teacher, uh, there are often grants and contracts that try to establish new programs. Um, for example, I'm dealing with some organizations that are struggling to figure out how to teach ethics in primary schools. Because the kids today uh, in some countries are not getting that sort of thing at home anymore. And the teachers don't ordinarily teach that. And how do you teach ethics in their own language? I mean, you, you can't talk to a seven-year-old about corruption because he doesn't, or bribery, he doesn't, doesn't understand it, but you can talk to him or her about the difference between right and wrong. And so there are plenty of jobs out there that, that uh, are looking for people to help do research on innovative ways to solve problems uh, overseas. Those jobs, you know, are typically often headquarters jobs and, and not quite involved in the in the politics uh, than if you're in the field. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm Beatrice. I'm a student at Georgetown University, um, and I would like to hear your thoughts on private sector-led development, like for example. Um, organizations that invest in developing countries. Uh, what do you s do? You see it as a potential, uh, you know, sort of alternative to assist economic assistance. Um, and in terms of careers, also, how do you think that could that invest in in the? Uh, for example, like um, capital funds that invest in companies in developing countries, or that kind of things. So, sort of. Uh, firms that uh, encourage growth in developing countries, but more from the private sector side, as opposed to be, you know, institutions or donor-funded yeah. organizations. So I, I mentioned earlier that this corporate social responsibility, which is, you know, kind of become like a household word. And, and let let me your phrase. Let me say this about that first. Um, there are companies out there that do it because they have to. Uh, they may have uh, a problem with the SEC or Justice Department, and so they want to have a good corporate social responsibility program along with a good compliance program 
so that they um, are not penalized as much as, and, and, but there's a growing number of corporate executives that have CSR programs because they think it's the right thing to do. And many countries now, if you go into Africa or Latin America, uh, Asia, and are um, establishing businesses there or have businesses there, uh, you're constantly under pressure there to uh, give back. It's very difficult within companies to figure out how to give back, what makes the most sense. And so they engage local NGOs in the countries to be partners with them to try to determine whether their money is best spent in uh, building a medical clinic or building schools or developing a, um, um, a, a program for, uh, for higher learning. Um, it used to be years ago, by the way, that the, the, the money that corporations give out in grants was dictated by uh, the wife of the CEO's favorite charity. It's seriously, this, you know, I mean, you, you go in and apply for a grant to, for a foundation or a, or a corporate social responsibility uh, grant for a large corporation, and you'd find that it's all going into uh, the local art community because that's something that one of the senior executives is involved in. We've moved away from that. They're more serious about trying to figure out what's really needed. But then the trouble is, how do they accomplish it? You know, um, th there are also problems. You've got to stay away from charities in these uh, developed countries, with southern southern hemisphere countries that that are are really fronts for government officials, and they don't do anything but but suck up money. Hi, my name is Charlie Gilman. I'm a AAAS fellow at USAID. Just started. Um, I'm going to give you a fun question. In what ways has America uh, lost or gained moral high ground since you've been in career? You, as a younger, I guess not as young as some of us, but as a younger person, I had this impression that America at one point had a moral high ground, and this gave us some authority to uh, do development. Uh, does having a moral imperative in itself give us a moral high ground? Or is that across the board? Everybody has a moral imperative. Uh, so how, I'm curious, could you tell me how has that changed or, or has it even, it hasn't changed, it's just, a, it's just a perception that someone has from a different generation over the course of your career. And then how does that play out in our ability to do development work, probably in specific contexts? Mm. Yeah, it's changed dramatically. We used to have a really strong bully pulpit uh, and we were in a position not to dictate, but to strongly suggest um, what good governance or compliance or uh, rule of law uh, should look like in, in, in countries. Uh, now, gosh, when I go out and speak um, about corruption issues, the first question I get, why are you coming and talking to us about corruption? Look at your political funding system in the United States. Um, very difficult to convince people now uh, that the United States uh, is, knows what's best for them. So we have to be far more, um, we have to be far more diplomatic. It's just 
the, the old, we're the United States, and we know what's best from a value standpoint, from an ethics standpoint, from a morality standpoint, doesn't work anymore. Uh, you, you've got to say, I mean, I, I, look, I'm the first one to say when I go out, look, I'm not here to lecture you, and I want you to know that we have corruption problems in the United States. And our political funding system is broken in the United States. So we've got real problems. But let me address some of the issues here locally that I think that we have learned through our experience uh, can be fixed with, with the right sort of involvement from civil, civil society, from business, and from government. You can't, you can't fix what's, you know, if, 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 talking about corruption. You cannot fix a corruption problem in a country without cooperation from the three segments that I just talked about. I might throw media in there as, as, as well. Um, so yeah, we've lost the, the, um, the initiative. And I don't think that, I'm not sure we'll ever really uh, have it back. If I could just uh, add a comment to that too. I think it's interesting if you go back to the 60s and 70s, um, it was the United States and the Brits, pretty much, providing bilateral assistance internationally. Now you've got uh, donors from South America, um, Brazil, you've got Middle East donors, they have different systems, different approaches, and, and uh, China. Uh, China, and they're doing well as they provide assistance to these, to these various countries that need development assistance. So it's not just the U.S. and the Brits anymore, there are alternatives. Uh, in terms of the, the, the paradigm, <coughs> paradigm for development, the funding sources and the societies they've, they've come from. You can look at, uh, we talk a lot about corruption. You can look at, frankly, Ethiopia right now. That is not doing too bad, but they've got some massive political problems. And uh, they're following a different model than the one proposed by the U.S. and the British. So there's competition now, too. It's not, a, in a sense, not a bipolar world like it used to be. Um, there's all different points of development assistance uh, around the world, and they all have different approaches and different plans. So we're so, not the only game in town anymore. And it's interesting. Yesterday I was on a conference call with TI. We're planning for the next International Anti-Corruption Conference, which is held every two years, and it'll be in Panama, interestingly enough, this year, uh, given the buhaha about the Panama Papers. It's a perfect place to hold an anti-corruption uh, conference. <laughs> but I brought up something yesterday that, that kind of stunned everyone else on the phone. I said that the anti-corruption movement is clearly having an impact that um, because of the, the new international treaties, the OECD anti-corruption treaty, UN treaty, the Inter-American Development Bank treaty, not in American Development Treaty Against Corruption, uh, we're making progress. And I know this because it's getting harder for those that are corrupt, let's say a president or a head of state prime minister, to get access to the monies that they've stolen because we've really put pressure on financial institutions. But with every success, there's a consequence. And let's look at what's happening around the world today. And this worries me. There's a drawback from democracy, all right? You look at some countries, and the leaders of those countries have been, um, ha have been putting opponents in jail, uh, journalists in jail. 
have been uh, engaging in more human rights violations. They're doing it in part to keep themselves in office. Let's look at Malaysia. Where can the Prime Minister Nabil, where can he go? If, if he leaves office, and this is not only him, and we can talk about a guy like Kabila in the Congo, where do they go now? First, they can't really get access to their money and use it because someone's going to notice that they left the country, they're living in the UK, and they just bought a $50 million estate. Those days are over now. So the problem is we've put them in a position where we can't get rid of them. They have, they, they have decided that unless they are now prime minister, president, or general for life in that country, they have very little opportunities outside. I mean, you know, maybe a country like Russia might take them, but um, uh, they've been noted for taking corrupt officials before and exporting some as well. But um, so, so the, the success we're having in the anti-corruption field is partly to blame for the drawback we see now in democracy in many countries. Shoot me. What can I say? I mean, we, we worked hard and we'll work harder. And, you know, this convinces me that we need an international anti-corruption court like the criminal court, which I know has its problems, but uh, without our being able to get these people out of the country and, and in, the, in some judicial system, it's only going to get worse. My name is Samir. I work for a private company here in DC. I guess I would just wanted to touch back on your earlier career and where you are now. I guess for most of us in this room, we have this idea that we want to be international development, but maybe we also want to do different sectors in international development. And for you, reading your bio, you did counterterrorism back in the 60s, and then you became or went into sports. Did you always have that idea of going to sports, or you had this thought of maybe I'll do uh, agriculture, maybe I'll do gender, kind of had the uh, road open to yourself, or you so, were going um, into that yeah, sector. I know that too. I would too. Uh, <laughs> now, my career is a little bit unusual. So yes, I worked on counterterrorism issues. When I um, left that, um, I had a friend in uh, New York City. Um, actually, it wasn't a friend. I went to a speech. At, I, I graduated from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And when I went to a speech by a guy who was uh, uh, the commissioner of the New York City Department of Investigation, which is responsible for investigating corruption in the New York City government, I, I thought, God, I'd love to do this. And the timing was right. Uh, I, I, there's a point to this, and I'll get to it very shortly. The timing was right because there was a massive police corruption investigation going on at that time. You all may remember the movie Serpico, uh, where the entire drug enforcement group within the New York City Police Department was under investigation. Um, I went up to see this guy and I said, look, I'd love to work for your organization. I don't have any background in corruption. I've just gotten out of work in intelligence. And he said, you're hired. 
And I said, what, what? <laughs> he said, look, we're investigating police corruption. We, we can't use cops or ex-cops to do that. And your background in intelligence is just what we're looking for. So that started my career on corruption. Now, what started my career on international development and corruption was I went to Washington. I caught Potomac fever, and I served on the Senate Watergate Committee. But then when Bill and I served in the, um, in the House of Representatives together on the Foreign Affairs Committee, it began to open my eyes as to the problems overseas. I had spent my career in domestic corruption. And, uh, and then, of course, we both wound up at AID, and that opened up our eyes even wider to the problem of corruption in, in development. I didn't get involved in corruption in sports until more recent years because it wasn't on my radar screen. In fact, it wasn't on anyone's radar screen. Uh, all, you know, no one thought that, holy cow, um, $30 billion a year uh, in soccer alone, what they call a football overseas, it's become a huge multi-billion dollar industry. Sports alone is, uh, is a trillion dollar industry. No one cared about sports. They were focusing on the Fortune 500 or a company like Siemens or, or Airbus or you know, the more traditional uh, multinationals. And they were giving sports bodies a pass. And so when I asked, got asked to join the, international, the Independent Governance Committee of FIFA, I knew what FIFA was but didn't know much about it. And um, I went in uh, a little bit naive, uh, but found out very early on that sports had no governing, had no governance instincts, or they simply didn't care. Uh, they saw it as a way to line their pockets, the executive committee of FIFA. It wasn't about the sport, it was about themselves. When they first started FIFA, it was volunteers. But as soon as FIFA started making billions of dollars, then all of a sudden it became about them and not about the sport. So I decided then, because I'm a sports fanatic, that I'm going to concentrate on sports. And the reason I do that, this is because of the kids. Um, you know, when the kids have a hero in sports that turns out to be bad, um, they start to think, well, if he did it, I can do it. You know, if someone took an illegal substance or someone bet illegally on his own game uh, or ma fi fixed a match or whatever. Um, sports still, I mean, I, I've, I always remember the purity in sports. When I played sports as a kid, my parents, when they came to my games, they would never think about getting in the coach's face or yelling at the referee. Have you been to a game recently, a little league game? Oh my gosh, you have to wear Kevlar if you're a referee or, or, or a coach. It's gotten so bad, I've seen parents ejected from games. And so what happened to the purity and what happened to the values? And you know, this is one area that we can make a difference in and it'll make a difference in society. You know, if we can teach fair play and, and we can teach values through sports and begin to turn this thing around, it'll make a huge difference in, in uh, how kids think in, in, as they go forth in life. So I'm all over this sports issue right now, and unfortunately, the more I dig into it, 
the worse it looks because they all, all of these sports organizations, uh, whether it's the NFL or, uh, or FIFA or cricket or rugby or even volleyball, they all have tried to preserve their autonomy. They don't want oversight. They, they say right up front, they say, government should not be involved in sports. And you know what, they're right. Government shouldn't be telling uh, the baseball how many strikes a person uh, should, should be allowed before he strikes out. But on the other hand, if they can't govern their organizations with integrity, with accountability, transparency, then indeed government has got to step in and do it for them. And so we have formed a Sports Integrity Global Alliance where we, it's brand new. We already have 80 major uh, sports organizations, sponsors, and educational institutions that have signed on to this to bring to the table a standard set of governing principles for sports around the world. Unfortunately, we have not been able to get to the table the IOCs of the world, International Olympic Committee, or the FIFAs of the world, uh, because they're not ready yet in their own minds to share um, governance with an independent body. Uh, sorry, I, I mean, when you bring up sports, it's like setting me, setting me off. Hi, Whitney, Tom with International Medical Corps. Um, I was wondering, so you just described um, a pretty full career in different sectors, but could you speak to some of the transferable skills that you feel like you've picked up over the years and then some suggestions you might have for professional development opportunities um, when you already feel like you're giving 100% to your existing job? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, um, pushing audit trails, this skill with the financial forensic investigative skills and the audit skills has really helped me a lot in my private business and in my work at NGOs. The bad news is when I get asked to sit on a board, uh, whether it's SIP or Transparency International or whatever it might be, is they always want me to chair the audit committee. And that, that, that's not a fun job. <laughs> It's, it's very intense. Um, and if you do it, by the way, in the private sector, and you do it for a company that's publicly listed, you have a lot of liability. And so you really have to work hard to ensure that you're dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Language skills uh, is another thing that um, I was lucky enough to pick up German and Spanish along the way, although it's very rusty at this point, I can still order a beer in Mexico. Um, that has been a skill that is, that's really transferable. But the, the biggest skill has nothing to do really with education uh, or with on-the-job training. It has to do with your, what I referred to earlier as your moral ethic uh, compass, uh, doing the right thing for the right reason, and not necessarily talking about it or bragging about it, but bringing a degree of institutional integrity to anything you touch, whether it be an organization, whether it be a program. If you're dedicated to that, you're gonna, I promise you, you're going to succeed in life. Will you run into roadblocks? 
will you, by the way, you will not be the most popular person in the world, that, <laughs> that I will tell you, but if you are, if, look, if you're in compliance work and you're popular, you're not doing your job. Um, the time in my career when I felt most alone, it was when I was doing the Serpico police investigations, um, because there was nowhere to turn to except your buddy on the left or your buddy. It's like, like a lot in the military, relying on the people around you. No one else wanted to speak to us. We were off limits. Uh, everyone hated us. Uh, you know, when, you know who, it's not a nice, it's not an easy job to put police in prison. I just got done uh, chairing the uh, police reform commission here in, in Fairfax County. Uh, not an easy job. Um, it's, it's something, it's a delicate balance uh, trying to get the police to do the right thing while keeping their morale up because they're very sensitive to how people perceive them and their jobs. So, but that's another story. Is there one last question? And uh, if not, please thank me uh, and join me in thanking Mike for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate you all. I appreciate your interests. And, and I pray that you find your place in life in the development community because we really need you out there.